All right, if you have a Bible or if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 58. And we're actually concluding a series we've been doing for the last few months uh, on the book of Isaiah. And when we get to the year 2010, we will move into Jeremiah as well. So uh, Isaiah chapter 58, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll uh, give you one. You can keep it if you like or return it. Isaiah 58. <clears throat> but before I read the text and begin... <clears throat> Yeah, back there is a need for a Bible up here, too. Well, let me begin. Let me begin by praying and uh, committing our time to Christ uh, here this morning. And so, Father, we thank you that you speak to us through uh, Scripture in amazing ways. And I ask that you would apply uh, the simple but powerful words of Isaiah the prophet from 2,700 years ago to us today in our context here in the city of New York. Meet us, uh, transform us, make us more like Jesus Christ, and may our lives uh, reflect you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to begin this message with a, uh, a two-minute video. And uh, it's a slow video, all right? So you got to hang in there with these two minutes. About the year... A thousand, uh, a group came together called the Carthusians. And these were men who chose in Europe to live together as hermits and to live in a community. They, they would live in their different cells, they would call them, and they would only actually come out for uh, their offices in the middle of the night uh, and for communion once a day. But they would only speak three hours a week together. The rest of the time, they lived in silence before God. Now, to this day, there's 25 what they call charter houses of Carthusian hermits in the world. And each one has probably less than 20 people in it. So we're probably talking about 200 people in the world live like this. So a number of years ago, a German filmmaker uh, wrote to one of their monastic houses in the French Alps, and he asked permission if he could make a documentary about them. And they replied they would get back to him. And they did, 16 years later. <laughs> so things move very slowly. And so he did finally get in. He lived there for a year. And he made a documentary. It's called Into Great Silence. Uh, and it's a 162 minutes of virtual silence as he traces their life. But what I'm going to show you is a two-minute clip uh, towards the end of this documentary of a blind French hermit in his 80s. And he's giving a, a short little interview there, which we're gonna catch. So it's slow, so hang in there. Uh, but it's very profound. And as you'll see at the end, while he is blind, he sees quite clearly and powerfully. And you'll see how it relates to our text in Isaiah as we move along. So let's turn off the lights and uh, let's go to the French Alps to the Carthusians. Et pas 
l'établissement. Plus on se rapproche de Dieu, n'est-ce pas Plus on est heureux. Et pratiquement, c'est la, la fin de notre vie, ça. Plus on, plus on se rapproche de Dieu, plus on est heureux, plus on va vite vers Dieu, n'est-ce pas On se rapproche de Dieu. Et pratiquement, on ne doit pas avoir peur de la mort, au contraire. C'est une grande joie pour nous de, de retrouver un Père. Le, le passé et le présent, c'est humain, ça. En, en Dieu, il n'y a pas de passé. Il y a uniquement l'univers, le présent. Et quand, quand il nous voit, il voit toute notre vie déjà. C'est pour ça qu'il, euh, comme il est un être infiniment bon, il cherche toujours notre bien. Et dans tout, tout ce qui nous arrive, eh bien, il n'y a pas à s'acquitter. Et je, je remercie très souvent Dieu de m'avoir rendu aveugle. Et je suis certain que c'était pour le bien de mon âme qu'il a, qu a permis ça. Lights on. What he says that really is quite profound is that the past, the present, these are human, but in God there's no past, only the present prevails. And he has this great line. And when God sees us, he sees our entire lives. And, uh, and he eternally seeks our well-being. Therefore, there's no cause to worry. And what he's saying is that And so he thanks God for his blindness that he could see this truth. Now, think of, we think of our life in segments. You know, I'm, I'm in elementary school, I'm in junior high, I'm in high school, I go to college and get a job, I'm a young adult, and I'm, you know, middle-aged, and then I'm, I retire. And we, we tend to see our life in these kind of a segments. And what he's saying is that God doesn't see our life that way. God sees our life, our entire lives, like eternally, all at once. And we are not to divide it up in these little pieces. And God sees your life from beginning to end. And so, as we're going to read this text here in a minute, in the midst of your life, God sends difficult people uh, who are difficult to love and be with. And you have to see that happening to you in the larger picture of God seeing your entire life eternally, a hundred billion years from now, as well as yesterday and what happened three months ago. And so, because it's so central to your relationship with God, and our theme this morning is, is how you deal with people who we're going to call your enemies. They can't be separated. So let's read now from Isaiah chapter 58. Just to give you a context here, we've been in Isaiah. Isaiah is writing to church people, folks who are following God, deeply religious. These are people who celebrate feast days, they're praying all the time, they're reading the Bible, they're... They're, um, you know, they're fasting. He talks about fasting here. They're very disciplined. And they're very conscious of not being like the world around them. Now, again, in Isaiah's time, they were living among, if you remember, the Assyrians and then the uh, Persians and the Babylonians. And so they were surrounded by great worldliness. And so God's people were actually coming together and seeking to be holy, seeking, seeking God's face and fasting and praying. They were passionate for holiness. Uh, and so these are deeply committed people to whom Isaiah is writing this text. Just like for many of you in this room, they're seeking God's guidance. Do I take this job? Do I move here? What do I do? 
So in the midst of this, Isaiah comes and speaks to them. And it's a very heavy word. And he says to them, things are not as they appear. So let's begin reading at verse 1. As Isaiah says, uh, I'll read the first four verses, then I'm going to jump down to verse, the middle of verse 9. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers, underline that phrase. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, underline that sentence, and in striking each other with wicked fists, underline that. Now down to verse 9, the middle of that verse. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Isaiah begins by doing this in verse 1. He says, listen, everybody, this is what God says to you. You may think you're doing fabulous, but you seem eager to know God's ways. You're in the Bible. You're going to church and all that. But I want you to know something. You're in rebellion. You're missing the whole boat. Then in verse 3, he says, listen, you're asking, where's God's blessings? We're praying. We're not getting an answer. Where's God's protection? Why isn't my life making an impact? Why aren't I, why aren't I further along than I should be? And then God says in verse 5, this is the reason. Because you exploit people. You're you're, you're touchy, you're quarrel, you're strife, you're judgmental, you treat people as objects. He says you point fingers at people. And uh, he calls it malicious talk. What God says is this. It's impossible to say you have a deeply spiritual life with me. At the same time, be judgmental. And be touchy. And be defensive. That you can't think of the spiritual life apart from loving people. That this issue of dealing with your enemy and the people that frustrate you is actually the place where God happens. Now, let me tell you why this is such a, this is such a, 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 a huge message and theme for me. Because I have struggled with the disconnect, like many of you, of time with God and having to love difficult people. I love silence. I, I love scripture. I love spending time with him. I love getting alone with God. And, and I can be like... I'm reading books, I'm learning new things, I'm growing spiritually, I'm sensing God, I'm getting revelation, I'm getting insight. And, and here I am, I think I'm growing wonderfully. But so easily, for most of my Christian life, it has had no connection with, am I really loving people any better? Like, that's really not my question. No, I'm growing great, because I feel great, and I'm feeling up. But the connection of, am I a more loving person towards difficult people? That has not been my indicator of, am I really growing? And I've had this disconnect. And what Isaiah says here is, that disconnect is death. And uh, because what happens is we end up, like, like, if you're like me, I've seen people as an interruption. If I could just get rid of people, I would do fabulous. I mean, if I could just live in that Carthusian monastery away from all of you and my family, I would be a phenomenal Christian. And I've had great difficulty seeing God in my enemies. And so I spend my daily office, my time alone with God in the morning, and I say, oh, this is God. This is fantastic, you know, and I'm filled up with God. I go face the world, and, and then I go downstairs, and the kitchen's a mess. 
kids' dishes are all over. It's a wreck, and I want to kill them. And I don't, and, and, but that's not God. That is definitely an interruption. And so I've had this disconnect, and, and so it's this compartmentalization. And, and Jerry, you know, as my wife, often when I, when I go on, while I go on a retreat, she'll almost always say to me, because she, she says, Pete, please, just please, just come to earth a different person, you know. <laughs> because she knows that it can have no bearing on everyday life of loving in difficult situations. And you see, the issue of loving our enemies is the reality of our faith. It is the real criteria of how mature really am I spiritually. The degree to which you and I love our enemies is a degree to which we are spiritually mature. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here. He says, you guys are kidding yourselves to think that you are somewhere with God when this is how you treat people. It's a very heavy word. And Jesus actually picked up on Isaiah 58 in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, the Pharisees were cold, the religious people of Jesus' day, cold, condescending, arrogant, defensive, right? They, they looked down on people, and Jesus says, you don't get it. You were taught, you know, hate your enemies and, and, and you know, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you only love those who love you, Jesus says, what reward will you get? The pagans do that. The tax collectors do that. He goes, if you only say hello and greet the people you love, you're no different than anybody else. And he's pointing about the kingdom of God is different because our spirituality is actually, according to Jesus, is to impact how we love the people we can't stand. So here's the question as we go into this text here. Um, wait, before I do that, I, I have a new line, which, or a new definition of contemplation. I've always defined contemplation as slowing down your life to be with God or slowing down your life so you have communion with God. That's contemplation. But I realized it was really not a full definition. And as I pondered this last few months, I realized I, I missed it. No, contemplation is slowing down to be with God and others. It's slowing down for communion with God and others. I realized I like the slowing down for communion with God piece. And others is a bit more difficult. And if you remember, that's why Jesus said the great commandment is both God and others. He refused to have them separated as we do. So he, here's the question I want to ask you. Who is your enemy today? Now, you have to get this in your head as we move into this text. Now, I'm talking about, I'm going to use the word enemy throughout the service just to kind of like summarize all that's under the word enemy. I'm talking about someone who drives you crazy. Someone that you avoid. Someone that you have a hard time loving. Someone that irritates you. Someone that you resent. Someone perhaps that, you know, that's hurt you or done you damage. Now, so we'll call them enemy today. Now, some of you just, you have a broad enemy, you know, institutions. You, Wall Street is the enemy, you know, or you know, the government is the enemy. You know, the IRS is the enemy. Uh, banks or, you know, terrorists or socialists, or communists, or you know, capitalists, or whatever, you know. And, and since we come from so many different countries in this room, uh, out of our cultures and family of origins, we carry certain enemies, right? I mean, you've got generational dynamics going on. I had a neighbor who was from Serbia. He considered the Bosnians his enemies because of some event that happened in the early 1300s, which he held on to with great fervor. You know, of course, Arabs and Israeli conflict, and 
deep enemies there, African Americans and whites, among Latinos, Asians, and you know, you got enemies between races and economic classes, male, female, we can go on. But today, I want to get, I want to go closer to home, because this text is really about you at home, in the communities that you're a part of, and how you deal with these enemies on a very close level. I'm talking about, this text is referring to the people you work with your family, your neighborhood, and your church, your community. Because whenever you're living in a community of any sort, whether it's a workplace or a neighborhood or a family or a church community, you will accumulate enemies. It's inevitable, as we'll see in just, just a few moments. And so Isaiah is writing to them saying, guys, at the workplace, you exploit people, you're oppressive, you're pointing fingers, you know, in your, your families, in the community of God's people, you've got attitude. So I'm going to just fill out this question for you as you think of a name. Some of you have many names. You may have triple digits of names in there. <laughs> so who are some people that you can't stand right now? You may work with them. They may be your boss. They may be a coworker. They may be an employee. Your enemy may be your spouse. It may be one of your children. It may be one or both of your parents. It may be your ex-spouse. may be your in-laws. It may be who you spent Christmas with a few days ago as you unsuccessfully try to love some family member. And so you end up doing what Jesus do, did, you know, spoke about. Jesus said, murder is not actual committing murder. Murder is is what we do with our glances. It's our contempt. It's our attitudes. It's, it's, it's our glance that says, you jerk. You know, it's withdrawing from someone because they're a pain in the neck. It's the silent treatment. It's that, it's that sarcastic comment. It, it's, it's a murder of, Jesus says, his feelings of the heart. And it's not seeing a person as a person, but you see him as an object. And, and so that's why, again, I want to encourage you. Some of you are getting involved in new life. We will be sending you some new enemies soon. They will be coming your way. So it's very important that we learn really the two lessons out of Isaiah. And they're, two, they're very profound. And, and the first is simply this. Nothing is more important than learning not to despise others. Now I want you to notice the word nothing is more important. Because what Isaiah is saying is that your entire spirituality is worthless. Because of the way that you treat people that you can't stand. And the word do not judge is found throughout the New Testament, do not judge. But really, the, the best synonym for the word judging is despising. We despise people. Now, what that means is we harden our hearts towards them. And now, I'm not judging, it does not refer to, you know, realistically discerning good and evil, or right or wrong, or what's appropriate and inappropriate. It's not that you agree with everything a person is doing or not, or we don't make discernments. The issue is deciding whether this person is worthy of love anymore. And we come to a place and we say they're not, and we write them off. Our hearts grow hard. We've now despised them. And uh, again, the problem is not, the issue is not the problem of right or wrong. The issue is our, our hearts. And the hypocrisy of it all is, as Paul says in Romans, the very thing that upsets us about them is in us. We just can't see it. So let me, let me try to illustrate this with my neighborhood. 
You know, my neighborhood, uh, until about five, six years ago, we all knew each other. We all were friends, you know. We, went, really, we used to joke around how it was the ideal New York City neighborhood. Uh, intergenerational, multiracial, multicultural, very warm, friendly. People would help each other out. Uh, and then development came in. Some older people began to die off. Uh, One-family homes became four-family homes. It became a whole different neighborhood, almost overnight, over the last five, six years. And, uh, you know, less parking. And uh, you, you, I kind of felt invaded, like my old neighbor got taken away, and now I was invaded. And um, so on one side of us uh, moved a family from the Mideast, a, a, uh, a Lebanese family from, uh, from Lebanon, a rather strict, conservative Muslim home. And uh, so not uncommon, you know, I'm out there spending, I'm reading a book out in my backyard, you know, one of the kids comes out and he's, he's laying out praying towards Mecca five times a day, you know. So, but what makes it, we have different cultures. And so we live life differently. Our languages are different, so conversations can be pretty exhausting. Uh, our food is different. The smells are different. The music they listen to, which is often quite loud, is very different. Uh, their time for dinner is different than our time. We generally eat 5 or 6 o'clock. They eat between 10 and midnight, you know. And they like to cook under an open fire outside our bedroom. <laughs> and they like big fires. And, you know, more than once, Jerry and I have wondered if our house was on fire because of the smoke coming out of their fire pit. And then they tend to want to clean their driveway area with their, with their very loud power washer, which is right outside our bedroom window, window, often right around dinner time. I don't know why they would choose five or six, but it gets very noisy very often around that time of day. And so all these annoyances kind of build over time. And, but it's very easy for that annoyance to make these people my enemy and to camouflage the fact that they're really very kind and they're very, very hospitable. Uh, and in fact, last year we had a graduation party in June uh, for one of my daughters. And so we really wanted to use our backyard and you know, fix it up and all. The problem is they have all this firewood, which they take from all over the place. I mean, big stacks of it. And it spills over into our yard, you know, because there's so much of it. And it's a real eyesore. And also, by the way, the, the fire pit, the fires have burned into my fence, you know, that separates us. It's all charred. They also took down the other hedges that separated us because they want to live as family with us, you know. So they just removed the hedges. There, were, there really wasn't a discussion. It just kind of, I came home and they were gone, you know. And so so I'm, I'm adjusting to the culture. And so I wrestled with, we're going to have this big graduation party. We're fixing up our yard, but it looks like a disaster area over there, you know, and the wood coming over to our house, and I'm hoping, I hope they don't have a huge fire that day, you know, and, and their, their dinners off there are 10, 15, 20 people, you know, at a shot, very large gatherings with the music blasting. So I thought about, we thought about, Jerry and I talked about, maybe we'll build a big wall. <laughs> Go to Home Depot, get a big fence, you know, put it up, you know, just end this relationship, you know, with these folks. And we went back and forth, you know, for a while, and um, no, we didn't build a fence, we, did, we didn't build a fence. But we had to wrestle with you know, what does it mean to not see these people as the enemy uh, who are just being themselves, you know, very different than us? And, and so we talk about loving your enemies. I, I, I want to be clear here as we, we go forward here that I'm not talking about being a doormat to people because we do believe in emotionally healthy skills. There's a place to be assertive. 
uh, which I was, you know, speak truth, but listen well, set boundaries, clarify expectations. What I'm driving at here and what Isaiah is driving at here is that despising where your heart grows hard towards somebody. That's the issue here. Regardless of how you approach it, it has your heart grown hard towards that enemy where actually you're withholding love from them completely now. Now, there's a great quote here from the, from a, uh, the Desert Fathers. If you remember, these were the fellows in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries who, who fled to the desert. They're like the early Carthusians. Uh, and they went to live as hermits uh, in the tradition of John the Baptist and Moses and Elijah. But one of the great learnings that came out of there, was some real powerful learnings, what was this, was this remark by Anthony, the founder of the Desert Fathers, our love and our death is with our neighbor. Our, our life and our death is with our neighbor. If we win our brother, we win God. If we cause our brother to stumble, we've sinned against Christ. And what he's saying here is that to actually love our neighbor is like a death. To renounce despising or judging somebody is as difficult as dying because it's as natural to us as breathing. It's a task so challenging that it is best described, it's our life and death is wrapped up with this neighbor. And what Isaiah is saying is, that neighbor and your relationship with that person who is your enemy is actually the place where God is happening. You may think it's the last place God's happening. Isaiah is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. It's right in the center of where God's happening. You see, perhaps the greatest character quality of a Christian is that of not despising anybody anymore. The whole of the Christian life can be described as a refusal to despise, a refusal to judge. This is actually the pathway of purity of heart that I actually see people and I see their irreducible good, that there's a whole universe in that person. I can't see it. And they're a mystery, there's vastness, there's nobody like them on earth. Jesus shed every drop of blood, one drop for them. And I don't understand what's going on inside that person. They're all twisted up with their desires that really were meant for God. They're going the wrong direction, but they're in God's image. And it's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. You see a log in their eye, you see an oak tree, you see a redwood. But in their eye, I'm sorry, you're trying to take a speck out of their eye, Jesus said but you underestimate that you've got a whole log in your own. And you underestimate the redwood oak tree in your own eye as you're trying to inspect everybody else. And he says, only God knows what's going on in that person's heart. God is the final evaluator, not you. A spiritual person hides the faults of other people. A spiritual person hides the faults of other people and does not expose them because he or she knows their own sin. They've experienced it. But how many of you enjoy, if you're like me, somebody you don't care for, somebody that just bothers you, how many of you actually enjoy exposing the faults of someone like that? Because you want to make sure everybody knows. I mean, you don't know. <laughs> you know what she's really like. John Climacus was, a, was an author in the 600s. And he wrote something really interesting. He wrote this treatise. And he said this, when you begin the Christian life, the biggest failure you struggle with, where you fall, has to do with the issue of greed. Very interesting. Greediness, money, materialism. 
is but as you grow in the Christian life, the biggest issue and struggle and failure has to do with pride. You tend to have too high an opinion of yourself. But he says, as you're longer you're a believer, and as you move forward towards more maturity, the biggest issue where people fall and have failure has to do with judging their neighbors. That is the core spiritual struggle the longer you are a Christian. The more I've thought about that, the more true it is. Because the older you get, you actually see more problems. And you become much more judgmental. You actually think you're getting closer to God because you're so right. You're actually getting further. And one becomes like the elder brother and the prodigal son. Listen, a person can be so right, they are wrong. Think about that. They're so right, but they're wrong. Because the way they say it is condescending and critical and judgmental. So it really doesn't matter if you're right, you're already wrong. So you know what it's like. You're a parent, you've got these kids, and you're disciplining your kids. You're setting them straight. And you're yelling. And you're angry. They're your enemy right now. And you're letting it go. And you're telling them, you better love and respect your little brother. You're wrong. In being right, you're wrong. Or you're discussing the health care bill right now going through Congress, and you're having a discussion with a friend, some political difference. But the whole way you're co coming at it, you're right, but you're wrong. Because your heart is hard. There's despising in you toward, the whole, toward some people in that argument. It is God's intention that he would actually come through you to your enemy. Or better say, we are God's gift to our enemies to connect them to God. And actually, they're God's gift to you, which brings me to point number two. Nothing is more important in learning, one, not to despise others, but secondly, and our final point is, that your enemies are saint makers. They're making you a saint. You may be running away from them, but in the large scheme of things, remember the blind monk? He's saying, no, God sees the whole picture eternally. He sees you 100 billion years from now. And that difficult person is a saint maker for you. That person is the place where God is happening for you. So let me go back to my neighbor for a second. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Love of neighbor is more important than prayer. I would never have said that 10 years ago. Think about it. Because if I'm praying and I don't love my neighbor, who cares that I'm praying? Maybe I can't stand you, Thea. I can't stand Thea, but at least I prayed this morning and read my Bible. I feel better. I can pray up a storm, but I can be a real beast with my kids. So let's take my neighbor. My neighbor clashes with my lifestyle. So he comes to me one day and he says, hey, Pete, <clears throat> I'd like to concrete your front yard <laughs> and cut down your tree. In the, I, I have a tree in the backyard, a tree which I love. Now, he doesn't just ask me to concrete my front yard. It's not a big front yard. You know, it's a classic New York City, Queens front yard, but it's a, it's a front yard. I got some grass. 
and he's coming on quite strong that he'd like to cement it over. And he's coming on quite strong that he'd like to cut down my tree in the backyard because it drops leaves onto his backyard. So I'm thinking to myself, is he crazy? Now, in my better moments, I would say, like, oh, that's interesting. Help me understand. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, I like my grass, and I, I like my tree, you know. Or, you know, it was tempting to say, oh, yeah, 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 someday you can do it and just get, it, get outside the door, you know, and basically hard my heart and despise them. But I do love my grass and my, and my tree. But the key difference is this. Now, with him, I'm actually watching over my heart. I'm actually watching over the interior of my heart of what's going on in my, my heart towards him. Have I moved into writing him off? Have I moved to despising him? To get away from him? I want to go upstairs and pray. <laughs> and you are wrecking my walk with God with your culture and your obtrusiveness. You see, when I am alone with God in communion, I am present to my interior heart with God. I'm listening to God, I'm open, I'm, I'm present to the moving of the Holy Spirit, right? I'm open to myself. But you see, what Isaiah is saying is that in the same way, when you are with your neighbor, especially your enemy, in the same way now, you are to be present with the moving of the Spirit in your heart. What's happening inside of listening to God, hearing God? You know, this is spirituality. This is where God's happening. It's not two separate worlds. Wow. <clears throat> because you see, this irritation of your enemy and my enemies, it's driving us to our icebergs. It's driving you deep inside to who you are. Because the question is, you know, like for me in that case, I don't want to be a doormat, let them cement over my front yard and cut down my tree. But I've got to be thoughtful here and, and thoughtful and learn and be watchful over my heart, learn some skills to approach him and remain in a relationship with him. But you see, our enemies become enemies because generally they hit a nerve. Your boss, your coworker, your parents, your kid. And the question is, what's going on inside of me that I want to run away from them? I don't want to ever see them again. And it could be things like, you know, certain people make, make us feel like I'm not good enough or I'm inadequate or I'm a failure or I feel vulnerable, and I feel like, who has my back? They don't have my back. I can't trust that person. I write them off. And suddenly, our survival brain kicks in, and before we know it, we are fighting, grossly reacting to things. Have you ever gotten like this? And you're, you're, you're just like, you're just went crazy. And you're saying things and doing things, you realize you're not rational anymore because something got kicked in, something got touched, touched deep inside of you because God is using that enemy as a saint maker in your life and my life to get into your depth of your being to change you. And that person was a gift to you. Oh, doesn't this hurt? <laughs> to pull out of you, to drive you back to God that he might change you. So, so maybe you're in a situation, and some of you are, no doubt, where uh, your dignity is being taken away. Perhaps it's a, you would call it an abusive situation or minimally it's a very unhealthy situation. And so, so the question is, how is that person a saint maker? Well, they're a saint maker because they are driving you to learn how to set boundaries. 
They are driving you to learn how do I self-respect myself while not growing hard and hating this person. And maybe you've got to seek out a mentor. Maybe you've got to get some training in, you know, saint-making now becoming part of your journey, learning some skills. But it's forcing you on a whole journey that otherwise you would never have gone on. As that person becomes a gift. You see, again, that enemy is not an interruption to your spiritual life. In fact, they're right smack in the middle. So if you're married, for example, your way to God is through that spouse. You have children through that child, through your parents, through your family, through your co-workers. You see, the place to get connected to your enemy is with God. In other words, so you've got this enemy, you've got this person, they irritate you, and, and, and you, you just, it's not in you. You say, I, I have nothing for this person. I just, I can't stand them. Pete, it's, it's dead. Well, if anything we learn from the great writings of history is that, and there's many, many great uh, um, books on this, that, that you know you're getting closer to God when you actually, and you're loving God more when it results in loving people more. That's the basic principle. As you get closer to God and get more connected to God, you actually get more connected and closer to people. That is the great litmus test. So, in other words, the love of God comes out of a place of silence and solitude with him. That's where you get to learn to love your enemy. Uh, where Christ is transforming us and his love is getting into us and then it's coming out of us. But it's union with God that actually enables me to love other people. That's why to be busy and active and running 24 miles an hour, 24-7, it's very hard to love your enemies. Because there's no connection deep enough with God to actually transform you. But make no mistake about it, if you're like me, if, you're, if you think you're loving God more and your love for people is going down, something's wrong. That's what Isaiah is saying. You're kidding yourself. And so is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And then secondly, he says, the place to get to, connected to God is with your enemy. You may think you want to get connected to God, get away from this person. No, no, that is the place where God is happening for you and for me. Remember Matthew 25, Jesus said, when you, when you feed the hungry, when you visit, you know, clothe the naked, when you go to prison, you're with me. That's what he's saying here. You don't understand that when you're with that enemy, you're actually with Christ. Whatever you did to the least of them, you did to me. You despise that person, you despise Christ. You harden your heart to that person, you harden your heart to Christ. You can't separate the two. And Isaiah is going after this with a vengeance in Isaiah 58. But be encouraged. This is challenging for everybody. Once a year, I try to make this trip to this Trappist monastery up in Massachusetts. And I go for two to five days. And what has so encouraged me was that these people struggle with loving their enemies. There's about 70 of them. They live together. They have massive amounts of time alone with God and prayer and silence. I'm thinking if anybody can love their enemies, it's these people. And to find out their biggest challenge in living together is loving those who irritate them the most. And they got it. And that's why they know how much they need to be rooted in contemplation so they can love their enemies. But it's the community that brings out all that stuff. That's why it's the place of transformation. And so... To love your enemy or the person who irritates you, friends, it's a miracle. Can I hear an amen for that? 
To love the irritant must be born of the Holy Spirit. That's why you've got to get to God. So let me just quote again that great old blind French monk we saw in the video. I love it when he says, when God sees us, he always sees our entire lives. There are no accidents. He sees your whole life eternally, not in segments. And he sees the people around you now that are driving you mad. And he knows they are saint makers to drive you to him and to transform you so you can be free. I love this great quote by Maximus. He says, interior freedom is not yet possessed by anyone who cannot close his eyes to the fault of a friend, whether real or apparent. So I want to invite you to freedom and me to freedom today. Could you imagine being that free, that you're so safe in God, you're so secure in your relationship with God that people don't get under your skin anymore because you're already safe. They don't threaten you. They don't push you over the cliff because you're so rooted in a place with God, you can actually hide their faults instead of reacting to them. So, let's close with this. Worship team, come forward. I want to close with a little exercise. Who is your enemy today? Or enemies? The person driving you crazy. And I want to just pray right now as we close. And I want to invite you to bring this person before God. And uh, to let God come to you about what might your next steps be like. Okay, so I'm going to invite you to, to pray with me. And uh, if I had time, I would expound on the end of Isaiah 58, because he says, if you will do this, and this is a challenging message for me, I tell you that. If you will let God do a miracle in you and so change you, the end of Isaiah 58 says, God will take you places and bless you and set you free, and you'll have revelation on levels you never dreamed but this is the pathway. It's going into this journey of, oh boy, this is the last place I want to go. But it's the place again where God happens. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment. Close your eyes. And I'd like you to bring the person or persons that you've identified as your enemy. And I want you to bring them and present them before God. And I'd like you to, by faith, just quietly under your breath, say, Lord, I believe somehow that this person is an instrument for you to grow me and mature me. And now I want you to take 30 seconds or 45 seconds and ask God the question, God, how are you coming to me? What are you saying to me? What are you trying to teach me? And what are my next steps here? Now, a miracle is needed to love your enemies. But the great news is God is good at miracles. So don't look at all your weaknesses and your flaws right now. 
But I want to invite you to open up your heart to God who does miracles and actually can make you a lover of your enemies. And his hand is upon you for that. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for you to release in this room power from heaven to break chains of despising, of resentments, of hatred, of avoidance and withdrawal. And God, that you would so birth into us the very heart of Jesus that we might discern you in these difficult people in our lives. And we might experience you, God, among these saint makers in Jesus' name.